So today's reading is Hebrews chapter 9. We're looking at verse 1 to 28, which is the whole chapter. So Hebrews 9. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, 
the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would not have had to suffer many times since the creation... Sorry. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When I first looked at this chapter, I thought, this is a bit complicated, isn't it? But don't worry, we'll, we'll explain it as we go and we'll get there. Um, have you ever done something that's made you feel really guilty? I remember in my first year at high school, uh, we had these fashion and textiles lessons. That's a posh name for sewing. Um, and unusually in that classroom, we had these nice fabric soft chairs as our sort of classroom chairs, I don't know why. And for some reason, I got it in my head that it'd be a really funny thing to do, to get a sewing pin, a proper sharp sewing pin, and put it on my friend Richard's chair whilst he was up. And then I just remember it, as he was getting closer and closer to the chair and about to sit down, I thought, this was a really dumb idea. And he sat down on it full force and let out this almighty yell, which you could see here through the whole wing of that school, I reckon. It was too late, and Mrs. Sharman, the teacher, she went absolutely nuts. She went into this, she was shouting, she went into this long speech about how dangerous this was, about that Richard might need to go and get um, a tetanus jab in hospital, and how we definitely were not going to start next week's lesson until whoever had done this horrendous act owned up. I was terrified. I, couldn't, I was too, too scared to admit it, and I spent the whole week getting more and more stressed as the next lesson approached. And I imagined it, it was going to be like, um, you know, like a detective story where all the suspects are sat around and no one's allowed to leave the room until the culprit is found. Well, in walked Mrs. Sharman, sat behind a big imposing desk, and she'd completely forgotten about it and just carried on with the lesson. <laughs> Back to making a pair of shorts and a teddy bear. But no trouble, no consequences. It seemed too good to be true. But I still felt guilty. It was a burden. And thankfully, I'm still friends with Richard to this day, 30-odd years later. And years ago, I was able to fess up, say that was me, and say sorry. And he barely remembered it and forgave me. Now, that was a minor thing that I can put down to the folly of youth. But I know I have, and I bet you have, got plenty more serious things that we could carry guilt for, guilt and shame. But here comes Jesus, bringing us into a new covenant, a new deal around our relationship with God, based on our sins being forgiven. So verse 15 we read, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So eternal life, receiving Jesus' reward, receiving what he deserves because our sins are paid for. 
it can seem too good to be true. Too good to be true. And the original hearers of this letter or sermon to the Hebrews, um, they're converts from a Jewish background. They were used to uh, doing presenting food and animal sacrifices to be forgiven, to be acceptable to God and deal with their guilt. And at least those were kind of tangible signs, weren't they? And they involved a fair bit of cost to yourself, so it kind of made sense that they got you off the hook, at least for a while. But forgiven by Jesus through faith? I mean, how? How does it all work? Our author is concerned that if these new Christians don't get how it is that Jesus has won us forgiveness, they'll deal with the pressure they're under by going back to old covenant ways, old ways of worship. So as I said before, car enthusiasts are sustained in their passion by knowing nerdy things about engines and how it all works. Uh, you know, not only what a gasket head is, but what makes a good one or an excellent one. Well, the author of Hebrews is seeking to assure us, if we know how it all works, we'll see how much better Jesus is. And we'll be assured that this offer of forgiveness and being free from guilt and shame isn't too good to be true. So just two parts to today's talk, uh, complicated titles, then and now. So then verses 1 to 10, now verses 11 to 28. So a bit of nerdy how it all works under the bonnet with the original Greek language. In verse 1, there's a construction that says men de. So the men is kind of um, on the one hand, or his, it's a compare and contrast thing. On the one hand, um, then, versus de, this is now. On the other hand, or now. So verse 1, uh, now the first covenant, that's the men, back in the old ways. Verse 11, but now. So that's then, now. So then, there's a picture of the tabernacle here, I think. Thank you. So under the old covenant, the old contract between God and his people of promises and establishing how they would relate to each other. Under that old covenant, the big day of the year was the Day of Atonement. So Jews still celebrate it today. It's called Yom Kippur. And the Day of Atonement was the big deal it's centered on the sanctuary, so the innermost part of the tabernacle tent of meeting, and later on, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and we heard it in the reading, uh, the setup described in verses 2 to 5, um, and we won't go into detail, because in verse 5, the author says, we can't go into details now, so that's good enough for me. So he's not trying to make a point about all the different symbols and artifacts, or you could look into them, but his main point is... Who can have access to God's presence? You see, the sanctuary was where God had arranged to meet with a representative of the people, the high priest, once a year. So do you remember the old days before mobiles? If you were meeting up with somebody, you'd say, oh, I'll meet you in town outside this particular shop at this particular time. You didn't just wander into town and find each other on your phones. Well, that's what... God did with his people in the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. And in Exodus 25, you can read about it. God tells them that he'd appear. Uh, you remember the Ark of the Covenant, and there was cherubim on top of it. On the mercy seat, he'd appear right there between those cherubim in some tangible, uh, some of his glory showing. 
So the point is, not just anyone could go into this meeting with God. Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, the, the holy place. But verse 7, but only the high priest entered into the inner room, that, the most holy place, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he'd offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. So the inner room sanctuary was in more direct contact with God's presence. So it was only for one high priest and only once a year. And only after he'd offered a sacrifice for his own sin before bringing the people's sacrifice. So just imagine you're an Israelite in the wilderness on the Day of Atonement. You've brought your sacrifice to the tabernacle. And you know, it really cost you. It was your best animal. Um, but you suppose that's appropriate that it costs you, considering what it represents. It represents what a bad egg you've been all year, how you've let God down. So you, this day of atonement is a pretty sobering affair. Everyone's reflecting on what they've done wrong. You're all pretty humbled. But then it's time. The high priest takes the sacrifice offering, representing all the people and all their sacrifices, And then he's gone behind the second veil to meet with God's presence himself. If God accepts this sacrifice, then he's accepted us. He's accepted me. And if not, well, who knows what will happen to us. But then, celebration. The high priest comes out. The sacrifice was acceptable to God. And we're all good with God for another year. Another year. Well, there's the problem, isn't it? See, inherent in the way God has set up the Day of Atonement was an elephant in the room, that they had to do it every year. To illustrate this, uh, got a slide, this is Neville Radford. Um, he's retiring from being a City of Onkaparinga's Graffiti Removal Volunteer Service. So he's been doing it for nearly 10 years, and in his time he's removed 29,500 pieces of graffiti. Now the trouble is, Neville today could remove every single bit of graffiti in the whole city and come Monday morning, he'd have to start all over again, wouldn't he? The trouble with the Day of Atonement was it didn't really work. Once that sacrifice had been offered for that year's sin, the whole sorry cycle of rebelling against God, going our own way, would start all over again. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing this by this, that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. The old covenant practices didn't clear the way for us to get into the real most holy place with God in heaven. They didn't really clear their consciences from heaven's point of view. Now, that said, those practices were the right thing for the Israelites to be doing at that stage in how God was dealing with humanity. So verse 10, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. The point is, Jesus has brought in the new order. See, God didn't get the small print wrong, and it didn't work out, and so he came up with a new covenant. 
No, the old covenant is a shadow of the real thing. But shadows are helpful, aren't they? You know, you can, they show you the outline of something. They show you roughly what to expect from the real thing. It's a bit like, uh, the old covenant was a bit like practicing for a fire drill or a bomb threat. So when I was at high school, I'm going back again, at least half a dozen times we had to evacuate onto the cold, wet sports pitch because there'd been a credible IRA bomb threat. Uh, so we grew up with bomb threats. Was, you know, terrorism was nothing new to us from the 90s. Uh, they were a real pain in the neck, but on the 15th of June 1996, when they really did set off a huge bomb in Manchester City Centre, nobody got killed. There were only minor injuries because everyone was used to taking the warnings seriously and evacuating. Everyone knew what to do with a real bomb threat. The foreshadowing, the shape of the real thing, had helped us to cope with the real thing, to know the real thing. The tabernacle, the Day of Atonement, they helped us to know that our sin is a barrier to being in God's presence, that a sacrifice was needed, that we haven't got it within ourselves to make ourselves right with God. And all this sets us up to understand, to believe in trust in what Jesus has done for us now. So that was then And this is now, now that Jesus has come. So now. We began to see last week, there's a real heavenly sanctuary of God's complete glorious presence. And Jesus has entered it. Verse 11. When Christ came as priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. But how? How was he able to enter this perfect heavenly place? Verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, like in the old covenant, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Blood of goats and calves and blood. Stay with me. So in our society, very few of us have anything to do with blood, animal or human, at all, unless you're in healthcare or you're a butcher or something. So all of this sacrifice stuff and blood can seem a million miles away, can't it? Well, in the Old Covenant, to be able to enter the tabernacle required the blood sacrifice, of, from, the blood from animal sacrifices. But why blood? You know, why is God into all this blood? Well, if we look in Leviticus 17, verse 11... For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So blood represents life. It's a simple equation. The life of the animal given instead of your life. The animal dies in your place. Because sin is so serious, so offensive, that sin deserves death. So Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death 
is the price of sin. Now, does that seem over the top? Well, that's because we're so breathed in the air of sin that we miss often how offensive it is. Like, you know, if you've been making a curry for about an hour, and then you come to serve up, and you can't really taste the curry anymore because your taste buds are washed in it. You see, sin isn't just doing bad things. Those bad things are the symptom of our proud rebellion, of us choosing to reject God and go our own way. But the trouble is, who we're rejecting is so perfect and good and holy. He's pure love, and he's given us life to enjoy him and serve him. So to reject God is to reject life. Um, in this book, uh, Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity, really good book to, to read through, an easy read, deals with um, several objections to Christianity. Ben Shaw, the author, he collects all the metaphors the Bible has for sin to help us see how stinky it is. In moral terms, we're sons and daughters of disobedience, corrupt, immoral, and essentially evil. In navigational terms, we're lost and have wandered from the path like sheep. In relational terms, we flirted with evil and played the harlot and committed spiritual adultery. In medical terms, we're all blind, deaf, leprous, paralyzed, and even dead. In hygiene terms, we're unclean, dirty, polluted, and stained in our hearts. In judicial terms, we're all, we all stand guilty in the divine courts of justice. And in financial terms, we've all racked up, racked up an insurmountable debt that can never pay, we can never pay, and thus we're all spiritually bankrupt. It's a pretty arresting analysis, isn't it? I don't say that, tell you that to bring us all down, but to help us just see why a sacrifice for sin is needed. See, what the shadow play of the old covenant worship tells us is that without blood, there can be no forgiveness. Verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So in the old covenant, God has shown us the seriousness of sin and the cost of atoning for it. Now, of course, the objection comes, well, if God is so loving and so powerful, why can't he just forgive? But forgiveness without atonement in the end is acceptance of evil. So if no payment is required, that's the same as saying, well, that wrong thing I did, it was all right, really. It didn't really matter. We've all done terrible things, and we can't just accept that they weren't really terrible, they were all right after all. God can't just say they were okay and didn't matter and leave it like that. He can't lie to himself. God must be fair and just because he's perfect and holy. He's perfect love. So God gave us this way of helping us know and show that atonement for sin is needed. But animals weren't enough to make things right with God. But now, Jesus is in the real sanctuary, making real atonement for sin, not with the life of an animal, but with his own life, his own blood. Jesus offered himself 
Now, why was that needed? I've pinched this illustration from another preacher, because it's a good one. Imagine you at school. Now, you, I'm sure you were well behaved, but imagine you've stuck a pin on someone's chair or something, and you've got detention, and you've got to stay behind for an hour after school. So you go into the classroom, and you introduce your teacher to Harry. You say, Harry's going to sit detention for me. Thanks, teacher. And the teacher says, no. No way, that's not fair. Because Harry is just your pet hamster. The teacher says, no, Harry can't take your punishment. He wouldn't even know that it was happening to him. So then you try again. Oh, teacher, this is Eric. He's going to do my, my mate from school. He's going to do my detention for me. No way, says the teacher. Because Eric's in trouble already, and he's doing his own detention, so he can't do your detention for you. Eric can't pay for my crimes, because he's already there paying for his own. Jesus' substitution and sacrifice for us works for two reasons. Because Jesus is like us, and because Jesus is not like us. So Jesus' substitution works because he's like us, he's fully human... And that means he can represent us. And it means he can voluntarily, actively put himself forward for the sacrifice. So in the Gospels, you keep seeing the phrase, he turned his face to Jerusalem. That's Jesus um, showing his steely determination to go to the cross. He gives his life. It's not just that he has it taken. As a friend, giving up their life to save a friend. So Jesus' substitution works because he's like us and because he's not like us. Verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jesus is unblemished without sin of his own to pay for. Jesus was completely faithful to God. So his offering can be devoted entirely to atoning for us, not himself. And Jesus being our real substitute means he can take our sin onto himself. And that isn't just theoretical. This isn't an idea or a philosophy to put your trust in. It's a thing that happened. The cross is a real event in history. So there was an actual date and time and place where our sin went unto Christ and his death paid the ransom. Verse 15 again. For this reason, because Christ's suffering death is enough to atone, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed. In other words, the cross worked. It really did pay our debts. But how do we know? Well, we know because it's worked because Jesus has stayed in heaven. He's not been sent back again to do a do-over because the sacrifice didn't work somehow or, it was, or he was unworthy or anything like that. Verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way high priests enter the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ 
would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Done away with sin. My sin has been done away with. Your sin has been done away with. And that means, objectively, according to God, our guilt has been removed. He sees us as innocent as our adoptive brother Jesus is. So that means, subjectively, we can be free from guilt and shame. Indeed, feeling free from shame and guilt is the right thing to do. Because to deliberately hang on to guilt and insist that it still matters, when Jesus has gone to such lengths to remove it, is to say, oh, actually, Jesus, I don't think your sacrifice was quite enough. I came across this prayer this week um, from the, you know, the old Anglicans have um, the Book of Common Prayer. And this is, there's collects for each Sunday. And this was this week's. Grant we beseech thee, merciful Lord, to thy faithful people, pardon and peace, that they may be cleansed from all their sins and serve thee with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. To translate the old English a bit, Uh, Please, Lord, objectively remove our guilt and subjectively have a quiet mind to help us know that peace of no shame, no guilt. Objectively guilt-free, subjectively shame-free. Well, do you know that forgiveness? Because we all need it. Verse 27 Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, die once. Uh, So I hate to break it to you, but we are all going to die. And death is permanent, but it's not the end. Our death is a gateway to going to face God on his judgment day. So Jesus is going to return, but not to do another sacrifice. So... I'll start at verse 27 again. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, that job's already done, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So judgment for those not trusting in Jesus, salvation for those waiting for him. If you're not trusting in Jesus... Please let us help you to seriously look into him so you can make your own mind up about him and if you want to wait for him. The stakes are too high to put it off any longer. But if you are waiting for him, don't worry. Your guilt is removed. I wonder if you're holding on to those guilty feelings, those feelings of shame, maybe about that big-ticket sin that messed life up, or some personality trait that you wish you didn't have. And actually, when you stop and think about it, you find that 
feeling of guilt is driving much of what you do with your life and much of how you react to things and how you treat people, how you treat yourself. We all deserve guilt and shame, but brothers and sisters in Christ, that's not what we've got. We haven't got guilt and shame. What we have held for us securely on judgment day is a clean slate. It seems too good to be true, but the how, Jesus being like us but different to us, the right substitute, the acceptable sacrifice, he gives us confidence that our guilt really is removed permanently. So just to hammer it home, to finish, I'm going to try and tell you this kind of the reverse of all those metaphors for sin and where we're up to with God under, under our own sin. I'm going to flip them to help us know and feel how we will be found in Christ when we face God. Guilt removed when we face judgment. In moral terms, we're sons and daughters of obedience. Incorruptible, moral And essentially good. In navigational terms, we're found and we're on the narrow path of our shepherd. In relational terms, we've rejected evil and remained completely faithful. In medical terms, we have perfect vision and hearing. We're clean, we're leaping around and alive. In hygiene terms, we're clean, washed, purified and unblemished in our hearts. In judicial terms, we all stand innocent in the divine courts of justice. And in financial terms, all our debts have been paid. And thus, we're all spiritually trillionaires. That's going to be a good way to be found on our judgment day, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just what good news that is, that we are objectively free from guilt, that you've removed our guilt in Jesus. I just thank you for him, for sending him, for your love and your grace to us in him. And please just help us to subjectively know that freedom from shame so that we can live in joyful service of you for your sake, to make you known and glorify you and enjoy the perfect relationship we have with you in eternity, starting now. Amen.